0: Yale Podcast Network. Welcome to Chewing the Fat, the Yale Sustainable Food Program's podcast that looks at people making change in the complex world of food and agriculture. Our episode this week continues the conversation on food justice. As part of our Chewing the Fat speaker series, we invited farmer, activist, and educator Leah Penniman to campus to share more about her recent and already widely acclaimed book, Farming While Black, Soulfire Farm's Practical Guide to Liberation on the Land. Leah co-founded Soulfire Farm in Grafton, New York in 2011, and they've been on a mission to end racism and injustice in the food system ever since. The audio you'll be listening to is a moderated conversation between Leah and podcast manager Ashia Ajani for our public event at Yale's Afro-American Cultural Center. Hundreds of people from New Haven and beyond turned out to attend. Take a listen yourself.
1: Hello, hello. Can you hear me? Yay. Good evening, everyone. I'm Risa Nelson, and I welcome you to the Afro-American Cultural Center, which I direct. And uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> While I also serve as an assistant dean of Yale, um, we are really, really happy that you could make it out to tonight's talk with Leah Henneman, founding co-executive director of Soulfire Farm and author of Farming While Black. As tonight's yes, round the applause. For that. As tonight's conversation really centers around food justice and, and environmental justice, particularly from a black perspective, and in the place that we affectionately call the house, our students' home away from home, I think it's only appropriate that we first recognize the Quinnipiac Nation, upon whose unceded land Yale has built this university for students to learn and grow. For when we acknowledge the traditional land that we stand on, we remember and we honor our forebears, our elders, and our connection to the earth, our true home. We recognize a longer and richer story that informs our present and shapes our future. In partner with the Yale Sustainable Food Program's Chewing the Fat Speaker Series, we have collaborated on tonight's event as a kickoff into the House's Black History Month programming. Other co-sponsors we wish to thank for their support are the Yale Center for the Study of Race, Indigeneity, and Transnational uh, Migration, RITM, Endeavors, which is coordinated by the Department of AFAM Studies, the Center for Business and the Environment at Yale, Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, and the Joseph Slivka Center for Jewish Life at Yale. So without any more delay, um, I'd like to introduce our guest of honor, Leah Pennerman. Come on <laughs> She is a Black Creole educator, a farmer, and food justice advoca- uh, activist, recognized for her many years of work by the Soros Equality Fellowship, New York State Health Emerging Innovator Awards, and Fulbright Distinguished Awards, among others. She currently serves as a founding co executive director of Soulfire Farm in Grafton, New York, a people of color led project that works to dismantle racism in the food system. So needed. Tonight, we've gathered to hear her share about her recently published and already acclaimed book, Farming While Black, Soul Fire Farm's Practical Guide to Liberation on the Land. And you can find signed copies of that uh, at Atticus just down the street from here. Um, Moderating tonight's conversation is Yale College Senior and YSFP student Ashia Ajani. come on up, whose (laughs) own... whose own academic work as an environmental studies major has focused on themes of environmental and racial justice. Let's give them both a warm house welcome.
2: Thank you so much for being here with us, um, for joining us. Uh, I adored your book. Um, It was amazing, incredible. and since the book is so much about soul fire and very influenced by the work that you do, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about Soul Fire Farm and um, how your own experience farming kind of led you to Soul Fire Farm. OK.
3: Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm going to offer you all a little gift before I answer that question. Um, so we have some, a bowl of water here with some agua de florida in it, some flower essences. And for those who choose to, if you want to take a little bit of it, and we can pass the bowl around, try not to spill it on your neighbor if you want to take a little bit and just do a little this, a little of that. Um, it's part of our cosmology that when we want to receive story, we need to clear away anything that would get in the way of story. And so since this is focused on that sharing of voice of ancestor and voice of Earth tonight, anyone who chooses can partake in a little Florida water. Do you want to do this first? And it can go around while we talk, too. So, let's see, Soul Fire Farm. Well, it's cold up there, you know. It's in the rocky hillsides of Grafton, New York on a parcel of land that was badly eroded and badly degraded by years of logging and overgrazing and misuse. It's in a town where Mohican folks lived for thousands of years and were driven off um, in the 1800s to Wisconsin, in a place that used to be what's called a sundown town. So if you were black after dark, you would be shot or arrested, uh, adorned with Trump signs and beautiful, clear, starry nights. And folks were like, there's no way you can farm out there. There is no way that vegetables will grow out there. So our family full of grit, and naivete, and determination. In 2005, we moved to the capital district of Albany, New York. And we lived in a neighborhood that the USDA would call a food desert. Meaning that it's high poverty zip code, no grocery stores, no supermarkets, no farmers markets. And we felt that hustle. You know, I've got a master's degree. I know how to farm still the closest vegetables were 2.2 miles away at a CSA drop-off, that's a a farm share drop-off, and so we would pay the exorbitant prices, walk, you know, pile the vegetables on the child in the stroller, go back down. And our neighbors, when they learned that we knew how to farm, these were our new neighbors, they were like, you need to start the farm for the people. And this piece of land, despite its characteristics and challenges really called out to belong to this mission of providing food as a basic right and healing relationship with land. It was literally from the first moment of stepping on those overgrown fields and in the forest that it felt like the earth was wrapping tendrils of belonging around our ankles and claiming us there. So we spent from 06 to 2010 just like building everything. I mean, it was a forest, so we built a house out of mud and straw and wood and put a driveway and a well and started out essentially with a mission to feed folks. You know, we grow about 2 acres of vegetables and another couple acres of meat and eggs and herbs and we box that all up every Wednesday and bring it to people who need it most in the community on a sliding scale. But over the time, over time, it's grown to expand. So my role right now is primarily education and organizing. So we train about 150 new farmers every year from Black, Indigenous, Latinx, Asian descent. Uh, we work with youth. We work with elders and also do a lot of regional and national organizing around reparations. Reparations meaning giving, ba- giving back the land that was stolen from Indigenous and Black folks as well as the uh, labor that was never compensated, so that we can truly have a dignified relationship with land. So that's sort of like the nutshell version of Soulfire, but I know we'll dig into other
2: parts. Yeah, um, I love that you were speaking just about that time frame from '06 to um, 2010, where you're, it's just building um, and. I know that, especially for black-owned businesses, black-owned organizations, um, that lifespan in that building is oftentimes very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that Soul Fire Farm has been around for as long as it's been around is an amazing feat in itself. That being said, I'm sure that having such a grand project comes with day-to-day ta- challenges. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about what some of those
3: day-to-day challenges oh, we're gonna are. We're going to go there right now. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I mean, so many challenges. Speaking of the building it phase, you know, I think that it was good that we underestimated how challenging it would be, or we would have never done it. We thought the hard part was raising the money for the lands. And, you know, there's a story I like to tell of Jonah and I didn't have enough money to pay an excavator to dig our foundation. So we did a little with the tractor. That wasn't working so good. We didn't have an actual backhoe we were just trying to push. So we got pickaxes and shovels, and it took us months to dig this foundation through hard pan clay, through rocks, and we get down almost done and have this moment where we realize that neither of us paid attention in middle school earth science to a concept called magnetic declination. Does anyone know what that is? Magnetic declination? Somebody must know. So y'all didn't pay attention either. So basically, <laughs> what it is, right? If you want to build a passive solar house, it has to face solar self. right? But solar and magnetic self are 13 degrees different from one another. So we had that moment in the hole with like bloody hands, you know, from the calluses. Like, do you want to quit? Never. Do you want to quit? Never, you know, and like redug the foundation. Um, so all that to say, there's many, many challenges along the way. I would say the biggest challenges that I personally experience right now are around. Because my life and my work are all tangled up with each other, silence, private space, introspection, boundary setting—those are all big challenges. So we live and work with our staff, with our participants, our children, our employees of our organization. You know, so the difference between, like, daughter, can you go fix the roofing shingle? You know, because it's your job versus, you know, like, daughter, can I help you with your homework? That stuff gets tangled in ways that aren't always healthy and clear. Um, so I'd say that's the biggest challenge, just capacity and boundaries. Yeah. Um, as, as
2: black people on stolen land, our relationship to land is often complicated and messy mm-hmm. um, and wrapped up in so many different systems of oppression. I was wondering, um, how do you reconcile those conflicting elements? And how, do you, how does what you write about address
3: those elements like within Farming While Black? That's deep. I would say that's the biggest heart wrestling professionally I've had this year. Um, Somewhat naively, a couple years ago, we started organizing with Mohican, Skattacoak, Nipmuc, Wampanoag, and Abenaki community members around our mutual, or what I believed (laughs) was our mutual yearning uh, to have access to land in a secure and dignified way. And without understanding a lot of the history of harm that has happened within and between communities, the fact that even as Black folks, many of us who also have Indigenous heritage—you know, I'm Taíno and Cherokee and Seminole—many of us have that. I'm not Mohican; I'm on Mohican land, and so I'm enjoying settler privilege, even though yeah. the fact that I am where I am is very much the result of the displacement of my own people. Mm-hmm. And I think it's—it's it's so easy for us to get caught up in what's sometimes termed oppression Olympics or um, divide and distract tactics, which is exactly, of course, what. Colonizers would love. It's like if we can all just fight each other. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, European heritage folks control 98% of the rural land. So there's actually, we're nowhere close to scarcity. There's like plenty of room to work together and figure out that reclamation, but these narratives and this unhealed trauma can get, you know, really get in the way. And so I don't have the answer to that, but I know a big part of the work is learning how to deeply listen to one another's hurt and not. Take it in as then invalidating the pain that our own people have experienced so that we can you know build a table together yeah wow yeah. thank you um,
2: so farming while black reads very much like a liberation guide it has all of these amazing parts to it it has historical knowledge it has recipes in the back it has scientific knowledge um, and one of the, for me at least, one of the most important topics in the book discussed was this idea of legacy knowledge um, mm-hmm. and how we learn from our ancestors. Um, so for those who don't really know what that is, I was wondering if you could explain what your viewpoint of legacy knowledge is and how that can be applied to Soul Fire Farms programming.
3: Hmm. Well, I haven't used that term before, legacy knowledge, so. Do you want to say more about it before I interpret it? Uh, Um,
2: So at at least when I I was reading the book, um, especially looking at all of these historical elements, um, the little, I wouldn't even call them side notes because it was very much woven into the text, um, but looking at how um, Ghanaian farming, how indigenous farming Mm -hmm. um, is informing current models of farming, Mm -hmm. but also communal land ownership, how that is also informing um, current ways of living and how that's kind of being applied to Soul Fire Farm and how even we can stretch that beyond Soul mm-hmm. Fire Farm. What, what can we learn from our ancestors and what can we bring um, to the table now?
3: Mm. So much. I mean, a big part of writing Farming While Black for me was about uprooting that insidious and horrible myth that black folks only connection to land is Via slavery and sharecropping um, and convict leasing, that our whole relationship to the earth is circumscribed by terror, mm-hmm. you know, which is not true. We have at least twelve thousand years of documented noble history of being connected to the earth and contributing substantially to what we now term sustainable farming techniques. And so those uplift sections in the book were about concretizing that. So you know take, for example, in Ghana and Liberia. You can literally determine the age of the community by measuring the depth of African dark earths, because every generation is responsible for creating this super rich soil that's a mix of um, bone char and kitchen scraps and you know uh, residue from farming, and it's combined in a certain way that it creates this super dark, highly carbonic soil. Yeah. And you can—it's like the rings of a tree. Mm. So you can counts how old the community is, down 700 years. You know. So imagine, so when we say legacy knowledge, legacy wisdom, like imagine if we all en- embody that level of stewardship for our piece of land that we happen to be on, where we have to build it up. Mm-hmm. You know. We're all obligated. And so it's just one example. There's dozens and dozens. But, oh. yeah. um,
2: From from reading your book, I see that you're very particular with the language that you use to describe certain things, um, which I definitely appreciate um, very much. Um, And I remember when you came, uh, I think it was like a couple years ago, and you were talking about the intersection of Black Lives Matter and food justice. Mm -hmm. I learned from you actually this term, um, food apartheid, rather than like food desert. So those kind of like very specific ways of naming things. Um, And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the importance of language when describing issues of
3: disenfranchisement. oppression? Hmm. I mean I think it's just important to tell the truth Mm -hmm. and so if I hear a word that's more precise I'll use it. You know like recently in collaborating with this incredible um, Reparations organizer who's from the Oneida Turtle Clan, I was talking about repatriation of land, and she was like, rematriation, and explained why it's very important to reframe that. So now I'm going to switch my lexicon. So I don't know if I have like an overarching theory about language, but just the more and more true that we can get, you know, like food apartheid is a human created system of segregation that relegates some to food opulence and others to food scarcity. A desert is a beautiful natural biome that emerges, right? <laughs> so let's really call things what they are, right? Very cool. Um...
2: So- So my family hails from Peelahatchee, Mississippi. Extremely Southern, extremely country. And we're very protective, they are, they're very protective of their recipes. So they're very protective of how things are made, what goes in them. And you have these amazing recipes in the back of your book that I'm very excited to try, by the way. Um, But what would you say to elders in the community who are reticent to exchange some of these unhealthy, albeit culturally significant, foods for more,
3: healthy, you know, like organic foods? Oh, interesting. I thought you were going to go in a different direction. So, hmm. So healthy is actually deeply cultural. Mm Um, there's some fantastic work that is done by the old ways organization if you should definitely check it out if you haven't where they sort of flip that USDA food pyramid around and they create these culturally specific culturally relevant food pyramids Mm -hmm. so for example the African cuisine has as its basis its foundation dark leafy greens right followed by tubers and plantains so your yams your malanga and taro and um, all of that and then you have your lean fishes and legumes like black-eyed pea and there's a a training one, there's an Asian one, and I think what's so important is for us to not think that eating healthy means like kale salad and sunflower butter, Like but we, can, we can actually eat our cultural foods in the ways they were intended to be eaten before our deprivation. Um, and Mike Tweedy, Bryant Terry all do a great job of kind of remixing and remaking and reclaiming. All that said, I'm not going to try to tell my elders to do anything, but um, I will invite them over for dinner and hopefully no. they like my soup and then they'll want to make it. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so, last
2: question before I open up to the group. Okay. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some potential coalition-building mechanisms between farmers of color, laborers of color, um, migrant workers that the that Soul Fire Farm um, employs, and how this kind of like relates to what you define mm-hmm. as liberation-based work.
3: Coalitions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I feel really blessed that. I've been invited to be part of things that are happening. So it hasn't been having to form them so much. Um, For example, the Heal Food Alliance is a national organization that involves the Union of Concerned Scientists, a farm workers alliance, I can't remember the name of it, the National Black Food Injustice Alliance, and a number of food chain workers. And so it's a whole coalition of everyone kind of involved in all sectors of the food system. And we work together on policy platforms. So at the national level, it's happening, which is very exciting. Um, On a more personal level, it's been important for me to push myself out of my comfort zone. Uh, Our programs could fill up overnight with Brooklynites who have rooftop garden aspirations, you know what I mean? But in order to make our programs accessible to those who probably even need them more, it means offering all in Spanish programming and and figuring out how to raise money for stipends to pay the farmers and the farm workers who are taking that week off of work. It means going and sitting with the chief of a band of the Nipmuc who's skeptical and being patient and building. And so we're leaning more into that on a a personal day-to-day level of how do we um, show up in allyship and in solidarity with folks who aren't as comfortable to connect with maybe as a predominantly or originally a predominantly black Mm -hmm. collective. So trying to be more supportive and in solidarity with indigenous and Latinx folks as well. I was wondering what you
2: would say to people, um, and I know that I've I've experienced this like with some of my family members, um, but this current, I think it's it's definitely changing, but I think that there's still like this pervasive notion of sustainability as a mostly like white and elitist form of environmentalism. So I was wondering if I could get your perspective
3: on what, what you say in like response to that. So there's two responses. There's one that works really well for the extra skeptical young person. This came from my friend Masai, so I have to credit him. And he basically said to these young people that came to the farm, he's like, look, you let them take all everything from you. They took your language, they took your cuisine, they took your religion, they're locking you up, they're feeding you as bad food, you're gonna let them steal your connection with the earth too? Like He's like, if nothing else motivates you, let it be spite. So there's sort of like that <laughs> argument, <laughs> which is surprisingly effective with a certain group of people um, for others. And for me, usually what I lean into is um, just uprooting that untruth. And so we talked a little bit about the soils in Ghana. There's many, many other examples. So... Uh, widely considered the father of organic agriculture in the modern sense is Dr. George Washington Carver, who in the late 1800s in Tuskegee was talking about soil biota and how you need the soil life. It takes precedent. You need diversified horticulture. You need to plant legumes in your fields to capture that atmospheric nitrogen. Mm -hmm. And he gave these incredible lectures where he quoted the Bible to essentially say, if you, doing harm to soil is like doing harm to humanity. It's a violence against the community. So at the end of the season, when you're done with your harvest, you don't just take and be done. You need to then go to the swamps and take up the muck. You need to go to the forest and take up the leaves and make compost piles and spread that around. And so he was the first, you know, agricultural professor to talk about sustainable ag. You know, the CSA comes out of black farmers. Pick your own, uh, raise beds, cover cropping, vermicomposting. So all these technologies that are supposedly white, you know, they're rooted in Afro-Indigeneity. So we need to reclaim that truth.
0: Following Leah and Ashia's conversation, we held the Q&A with the audience. Here are a few questions with my voice subbing in to maintain anonymity and privacy. Much of your book is about reclaiming African traditions. Can you speak to how you've connected with your roots in your own life? Wow.
3: Yes, I definitely can. All these questions are so big. So I'll tell you a story of my childhood, and then I'll tell you a story of my young adulthood that connects to that. Um, Adulthood first. So I was living in Ghana, uh, West Africa, for about six months right after college. Kind of a heritage trip slash volunteer trip slash I don't know what I was doing with my life thought I could help but actually I took more than I you know all that Um, so I was there for six months and the Queen Mothers took me under their wing the Queen Mothers are a group of women mostly elders who are responsible for the storytelling the ceremony uh, the moral upkeep of the community as well as taking in orphans and giving them and running businesses with them. So it was a very busy place, the Queen Mother's compound. There was batik making and soap making. And so I was mentored by these incredible women. They're sort of the OGs of spiritual activism. And one of their favorite things to do was to give me this daily quiz about life in America, right? Because they thought it was just strange. You know. So they, I would go, for example, in one day, and they'd be all like laughing and giggling. They'd be like, Amida Day, because I was waiting name there. Amida Day, is it true that in America, the man will be stirring the soup, and the woman will be tasting it for salt? <laughs> Maybe, I don't know, they laugh, like, how are you both in the kitchen? You know, so they had all these questions. And but one time their question was like, Amirideh, is it true that in the United States, the person will put the seed in the ground and they will pour no akpateshi, no alcohol. They will sing no song. They will not dance. They will not even say thank you. And they expect the seed to grow. So I had to sit with that because that is widely true, is widely true. Um, and to think of the earth, so they said, that's why you're all sick. That's why you're sick. <laughs> so to think of the earth only as a material being from which we extract, and not the orisha that she is, the, the living, breathing, conscious being who loves us and who deserves love from us, is sacrilegious in our cosmology. You would never just take. Right? And so there's certainly a whole architecture kind of around the religion, but fundamentally it's that. It's an Earth-based practice. It's an ancestor-based practice where we believe in that reciprocity. And the story from childhood is before I was exposed to, or even understood that that was a religion, um, I was raised by an ordained pastor and a lay pastor. So both my parents are Christian. I was raised in the church. And my sister and I, when we were very young, we would come home from school, which was a pretty traumatic experience for us being the only brown kids in our school. We got beat up and teased a lot. And we would go right to the woods, escape the family drama and challenges, and go right to the woods. And in the woods. We lived in a very rural town. There was a lot of abandoned, like outhouses and camps, and kind of things littered throughout the forest. And we turned them into temples. So we would we painted, we put um, sculptures, we brought in things from nature and set them all up. We poured offerings, we sang songs, we wrote prayers. We had this whole Mother Nature religion that we thought we invented. <laughs> and it wasn't until I actually traveled to Ghana that. I've come to believe that our ancestors in the earth were just letting us know, you know that we belonged and there was something beyond what, what we thought we had access to. So yes, I practice Haitian voodoo, I practice Yoruba Ifa, um, as well as Judaism, and it's very much integrated into all that we do. We have seasonal ceremony, you know, we ask permission, we use divination to make sure we're good with the lands, all of that. And it's not devil worship, it's not evil, it's very deeply ethical, it's deeply um, connected to heal and repair of the world.
0: So much of the narrative of reclamation for people of color is about land, but land is inherently expensive. What then should we think about when it comes to land access for those who don't have enough resources?
3: Yeah. The question's actually heartbreaking in this way, because you say inherently expensive. I think land is inherently free. Yeah. Um, capitalism has made it expensive. Like when I was born, according to the Pew Research Center, the white to black wealth gap was 8 to 1. It's now 16 to 1, 38 years later. So, And that's not because like white folks are better investors, um, it's because... Almost all wealth is inherited, and almost all inherited wealth is property. So that stolen wealth was never given back. You know, the land was never given back. In fact, it's more concentrated now with that 98% in the hands of white folks than it ever was in the history of this country. Um, it's more disproportionate in terms of access. So I don't want to give up on that. I will answer your question about like, what if you don't have land? But I don't actually want to just like roll over and die in terms of our access to land. Like, we all deserve. Tenure, and by that I don't necessarily mean private property where each individual has their own deed, but things like community land trust and ways, and co-ops, and ways that we can think about the land not belonging to a person, but belonging to all future generations and to this, um, and, and to herself, right, and, and to all of our non-human siblings. So, you know, we're doing some of that work in the land trust and rematriation and reparations work where we're creating these bodies that can hold lands in community and having a call for reparations. Like if you have lands, give it back and then in turn, we'll make sure it's accessible to community. Um, so that's happening and I encourage folks to get involved with it. I think it's secret and, and important work. At the same time, like the whole universe is in a blade of grass, right? Um, In Haitian Vodou, we believe that every tree is a potomitan. Every tree is like a a post that connects the ancestor world under the ground and the sky worlds of the Risha and the the beings in the sky. And that when you contact a tree, if you're open and you're listening, you have access to that information and messages and that belonging. So it can be any tree. It can be a tree that's like surrounded by concrete. You know, it can be any little world. One of my mentors in blessed memory, Yusuf Burgess, He was the director of the youth program for the entire state of New York for um, the Department of Environmental Conservation. This black man, veteran, um, you know him. He's, yeah, struggled with addiction and poverty, a lot of things in his life. And what got him connected to the environment was like acorn caps in Prospect Park in Brooklyn. It was the little seed. So I think we all have access, whether it's our... Little container garden or the tree outside, Um, but we'll keep fighting. We'll keep struggling for for land. Like Malcolm X said, land is all tied up with revolution and freedom and justice and equality.
0: So that matters too. Who are some of your personal inspirations, and what are some of your favorite books?
3: because I don't want to embarrass my best friend. I'm going to leave that out. But um, one of my personal inspirations is Fannie Lou Hamer. Uh, She's just so badass. Uh, A quote from her that I love to tell is, um, she said, if you have 400 quarts of greens and gumbo soup canned for the winter, no one can push you around or tell you what to do. So we know about her Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, but a lot of us don't know that she also ran Freedom Farm Co-op. She had a pig bank where she was giving out livestock, and you know, raised, she raised enough money for scholarships and housing and stuff for her people, and really relied on this self, land-based self-sufficiency. So that's something is a hero for me. Okay. Um, she definitely is. And books. Uh, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, definitely top of the list. Uh, The Indigenous People's History of the United States, I don't remember the author, but everyone on Turtle Island needs to read this book. I don't know, oh, this book, okay, so. I just found this book. I'm such a history nerd now. So this is called The Movable School Goes to the Negro Farmer. It's an 1895 book. And people used to write nonfiction, starting with like a third of the book being their autobiography. So this is the first black extension agent wrote this about his life growing up as a sharecropper. Like, what? A treasure. This is just holding on to this. So like, just old stuff. Read old stuff. It's really cool. <laughs> So maybe since we're done with questions, I'll just end with, um, we talked about hope earlier, and I deferred, because I think it can be easy to get really discouraged in the face of all that we're up against, you know, the administration, climate change, industrial capitalism, racism, there's just a lot, Um, and the thing that I often come back to when I get discouraged is remembering that my ancestors my grandma's grandma's grandma susie boyd and all the women you know in the community in the in Dahomey region of west africa they had sequestered themselves on crobo mountain to fortify themselves against the slave catchers because people were just getting picked off they were all good farmers folks knew they were good farmers and they were getting stolen and sent to a place from which there were no report backs and what they did in that situation was they gathered up the okra seed, the black rice, the cowpea, the millet, the sorghum, the agusi melon, and they braided those seeds into their hair as insurance for an uncertain future. So they believed that we would exist. They believed they would have descendants who would need to inherit that legacy. So I think we can ask ourselves then if our ancestors, in the face of that type of terror, had the strength not to give up on us, right? Who were we then to give up on our descendants?
1: Thank you. And with that, another (laughs) round of applause, please.
3: (laughs)
0: From the Yale Sustainable Food Program, this has been Chewing the Fat. To learn more about Leah's work with Soulfire Farm, you can follow at Soulfire Farm on Twitter and Instagram, as well as visit soulfirefarm.org. Farming While Black, Soulfire Farm's practical guide to liberation on the land, is available anywhere you might get your books. This episode was produced by myself, Ashia Johnny, Josh Kimmelman, and Thomas Hagan. mixing by Ryan McAvoy of the Yale Broadcast Studio, music by Eddie Joe Antonio and Luis De Felice. Program support by Jacqueline Munno, Jeremy Oldfield, and Mark Bomford. Also, special thanks to the following organizations for helping make Leah's event happen. The Yale Center for the Study of Race, Indigeneity, and Transnational Migration. The Afro-American Cultural Center at Yale. Endeavors coordinated by the Yale Department of African American Studies. The Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. The Yale Center for Business and the Environment. And the Joseph Slivka Center for Jewish Life at Yale. If what we talked about today gave you something to chew on, leave us a comment or email us at sustainablefood at yale.edu. We're always excited to connect with our audience near and far. Until next time, folks.